Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Given the unfolding situation in Afghanistan, I've decided to put out another episode as soon as it was recorded. Today I spoke with Dr. Kay Danes, who is seeking representation for 196 locally employed staff and interpreters who work for the Australian Embassy in Kabul. This is our conversation from earlier today. My guest today is Dr. Kay Danes, OAM. She is the recipient of the Medal of the Order of Australia for her service to the international and Australian community in human rights and social justice. Kay has a PhD in law and justice, and her thesis explored the evolving professionalisation of the Australian humanitarian sector. She also holds a master's degree in human rights and varying professional qualifications in business administration, security and law. Her 25-year security and humanitarian career has spanned across Australian and foreign government departments, humanitarian and private sector organisations in armed conflicts, disasters and other complex emergencies. Previously, Kay was an advocate for the Centre for Public Policy Analysis in the United States and has given numerous presentations on humanitarian issues before US congressional forums. Kay is also extensively connected to the Australian Defence Force. She is the spouse of an SAS veteran who has served 43 years in the Australian Defence Force, particularly in Special Operations Command, and was Regimental Sergeant Major of two Special Operations Task Groups uh, rotations in Afghanistan. More recently, Kay's work in Afghanistan has been recognised by Australian and foreign officials as an integral part of a national debate on Australia's commitment to Afghanistan. Today, she advocates for the more than 196 Australian embassy contractors seeking protection and evacuation from Kabul. Given the current situation in Afghanistan, hers is an important voice representing those who many of us stood side by side with throughout the past 20 years. Kay, I know your schedule is especially packed these days, so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Welcome to The Voices of War. Thank you, Maz. I appreciate the conversation. So we had a rather lengthy chat before this recording, and, and I... And I realise that this conversation will be perfectly inadequate to explore all of the topics of relevance to this podcast uh, that you bring, uh, given your extensive and amazingly interesting life uh, and experiences. Uh, And our focus today, naturally, must be on the unfolding situation in Afghanistan uh, and those locals who have worked with Australians for many years. Um, Mm. While we'll touch other subjects, undoubtedly, while we talk, maybe just to set us off, can I ask you what your connection is to Afghanistan. How did you become involved with Afghanistan? Oh, gosh. Well, in a nutshell, um, my husband and I had endured torture in a communist state, which had left me with this debilitating illness called post-traumatic stress. God, okay. um, Yeah, so that's a long conversation. Um, and but, one of those many tangents that are that we we must touch on uh, now shortly because you, you, much like myself, I'm sure my listeners would want to know what you're referring to. But yes, please go on. Well, well, um, you know, it it was a horrific experience. But the the thing that came out of that horrific experience was an opportunity to go to Afghanistan some years later. So about eight years later. Um, I went on a humanitarian mission into Afghanistan and um, 
unlike some of our veterans who have come out of Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress, I went into Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress and came out a rather different person. Mm, and okay. I, I embarked on a career then of, of humanitarian response. So um, quite okay. an interesting. <laughs> so so th- there are so many questions there. And firstly, just uh, to not leave that thread entirely loose, you said you you were in a hostage situation for for quite a long time. Where, mm. where was that? Maybe you can just give us a, the the kind of wave tops of that, and then I want to kind of zero in on your the fact that you went to Afghanistan with PTSD and came out a different person. I think that's an important thing to set the context of who uh, Kay is uh, before we then go mm. into uh, the kind of more contemporary issues. Well, well. Essentially what had happened was my husband was in the SAS and he'd served 20 years in the regiment. Mm. And then um, after Kuwait, uh, he decided to um, seek permission from his employer, the the, um, the Defence Force, mm-hmm. to ask them if he could take his long service leave, which had accumulated to two years, mm. yeah. and, um, and undertake a, a civilian job in Laos. In um, in 1999, and right. um, and so they gave him permission. They said, "Yep, go try before you buy." <laughs> and uh, we worked there for Jardine Secure Corps, which is G4S, and okay. soon to be gobbled up by um, Garda World. Mm. And um, we were security managers there, providing security to all the international community, foreign investors, embassies, you name it. Hmm. And about um, in our second year, we got sent uh, just towards the end of when he was coming home to rejoin the army, oh, not rejoin, return to the army, mm-hmm. um, the um, secret police kidnapped him and said to him, would you assist us in um, basically what they were doing was they were gobbling up um, foreign investors' assets, and, and they needed a witness to make it look legitimate. So they asked Kerry if he would sign a statement to say that one of his clients had um, done bad business, and then with that that evidence, they could then seize control of their mm. gem mine. Mm. Well, Kerry couldn't do that, of course, because that would be illegal, and so the secret police took him away and when after four hours of beating him, they still couldn't get him to comply. That's when they came and got me and the children and we were on our way out of the country. The Australian embassy was trying to evacuate us across the border and the secret police had phoned ahead and put a stop on my passport and so when we arrived at the border, we had secret police um, detain me. The children went with the embassy after much discussion. And, um, and then I was taken to um, a holding room in the centre of town. I didn't know where Kerry was. And an, a Canberra official was on the mobile phone that got handed to me and said, don't worry, we know where you are. We'll come and get you. Uh, that didn't exactly happen. <laughs> and in the meantime, the secret police colonel put out a 
a dodgy story about us being involved in sapphire smuggling because our our client was um, one of the largest sapphire mining concessions in the country at the time. Mm. And it all got very murky. And shortly after, I went to the secret prison inside of Laos and and, uh, eventually found out that Kerry was in there. We were separated the whole time for the whole duration and um, subject to torture mock executions, watched other people being tortured. There were 58 political prisoners in that prison, people that had disappeared from the face of the earth. And um, it was a horrendous experience. But during that time, I learned that, you know, we we can resist um, interrogation. We can resist mental illness um, to enable us to survive. Mm. Um, and and we did that effectively for close to a year until the Australian government was able to secure our release. Wow! So you were you were separate from Kerry for for one year, even though you were both you were held in the same prison. You hadn't yeah. seen each other, and, and more importantly, separated from our children because we had three yeah. children. And one of the things, um, I mean, Kerry had the advantage of having done resistance to interrogation because. Mm. His speciality in the defence in the SAS was um, counterterrorism and hostage rescue. <laughs> right. Okay. I didn't have that experience, so I kept drawing on images of uh, Richard Gere in Red Corner, thinking, "You can't torture me. It's against the Geneva Convention." <laughs> I had no idea what the Geneva Convention really meant. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Wow. But I've since learned. And how old were your children at the time, if if, the, if, the, if that's not too much to ask? No, that's all right. Um, so Nathan was seven, Sarah oh. was nine going on ten, and Jessica was 14. Oh, and, my God. Uh, yeah. You could imagine both parents disappearing. They, they'd been used to their dad going on long, what we used to call the very long day. Mm. Um, that mm. was the military deployment. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and Not to have both parents go at the same time and to not know where they are or what's happening or if they're ever coming back alive i mean that that's got to yeah. have been quite traumatic for them well I, you know won't necessarily focus on them uh, out of their own privacy because i'm sure mm. they they have uh, scars from that experience that i'm sure you oh, you've, yeah. you've, you've worked through uh, but i find it now having heard just the you know the, the kind of broad outlines of that story it it mm. makes absolute sense why you are why you are who you are and why you have become so actively involved with representing those people in Afghanistan who worked with Australians yeah. who basically face the very same if not worse if caught by the Taliban uh, and you yeah. have a very personal experience of what such trauma is uh, and you are lucky enough to be able to tell the story. Uh, whether they would be uh, and will be, that's something that unfortunately remains to be seen. So you then went to Afghanistan, uh, and I find it interesting you said you went in with PTSD. Why you had PTSD is completely understandable. Um, but then you, you, you said something interesting, that you came back out of Afghanistan, a changed person. What, what, what do you mean by that? When I landed in um Kabul, and you've got to got to look at this from the context that even though I was a military spouse, I I I was not I did not undergo the same training that military guys mm. and girls undertake. So I didn't have that exposure. Mm. 
Um, when I landed at Kabul Airport, I remember turning to one of the, the people on our mission, on our team, and saying, wow, this is like another world. If I can survive this, I think I might actually be okay. Because, you know, to survive a communist prison and torture and then to, to lose your mind for several years through through that trauma, it was very hard to find my way back to some normality. But I kept thinking, I was living my life, kept thinking that the communists were hiding in the bushes coming to get me. Mm. I fortified my house. I was afraid all the time. Mm. And I needed something to get me back into life. And that something actually had to be quite dramatic because of the world that I'd lived in, Mm. insecurity. And so going to Afghanistan, I thought, well, that's that's going to be quite extreme, but I'm going there to help people so mm. I can actually get healing for myself by helping. Mm. And I absolutely did. Um, mm. I was traumatised on occasions, don't get me wrong, because at night in particular, um, because I was taken in the afternoon and into the night and I had this feeling when we were driving along this road at night and going through various checkpoints, I just had this feeling that I was transported back to Laos Mm. and going along the bumpy road reminded me of the bumpy road in Laos when I drove that to go home to my house or when I went outside the prison to to meet the embassy and then drove back, you know, they drove me back. And so it dredged up these feelings that made me feel really sick. Mm. and scared again and and I had to remind myself that I was safe I was in Afghanistan not Laos mm, yeah <laughs> I mean I think that's an experience that uh, and, and I really like the link you made that you know many of our veterans have come out uh, with PTSD but I think that experience of, of how you're describing that trauma and the emotional connection to one's experience of trauma I think it's something that resonates with many veterans. And I think one of the things that at least I'm hearing, while I might be living in a bubble, um, as you know, many of us are nowadays, uh, many of my peers are, are kind of almost getting a, a, an emotional reaction of the sort they describe when they hear what's happening to those interpreters and, and members um, who worked or staff who worked for, for the embassy and so on, because they, it, mm. it does trigger a lot of emotions, I think, and perhaps even a lot of shame. Have you, have you seen that in your kind of in the, in the more recent days, months? Yeah. Uh, this is really affecting ADF veterans. I mean, it's affecting everyone. It's affecting me even, um, you know, and people in the ADF are questioning was it worth it? Was going to Afghanistan worth it? Families are saying, well, what price did my son pay with his life? Mm. You know, my my response to that is having been in the country and then my past experiences that are personal experiences, my, my, my response to that is that you gave people an opportunity to better themselves. Um, And even for a short time, you know, 20 years, that gave people hope, that gave people awareness of what they can have. And it's yet to be decided how much of that will remain. Mm. 
or will be taken away. We don't know that yet. We know that the Taliban have their their way of doing things, but a lot's changed in 20 years. So we have to wait and see. And I think that even having 20 years of of, um, experiencing the way that life can be, it shows people that there is more to life. And when you're in that situation, when you have so much suffering around you, those moments of happiness and learning and um, being in a stable environment, even just for one day, Mm. they, they impact you, they give you hope and they give you strength, strength and courage to endure what may follow. So I say that to the ADF members is try not to beat yourself up emotionally about this situation because you've given them, you've given them an idea of how to uh, be resilient mm. in a sense of what they can now be resilient for. They, mm. They've seen the, the world as, as you've shown them an opportunity and they'll work hard to try and find a pathway to that opportunity again. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and as a veteran, I thank you for saying that because I think that's an important message for our veterans to, uh, to, to take to heart uh, because many, mm. many would be asking those questions. Um, let's well, now maybe, I, sorry. Yeah, okay. I, I just put one thing in there and I'll relate this to that. There was a young girl in the prison in, in, in the communist prison and she, she just wanted to kill herself and she did attempt to in our cell. And I got so angry with her because I said, why are you giving up your hope? You know, while you have breath, you have hope, you have an opportunity, you have a chance. And, and that's, that's what I say to our veterans is if you're carrying something, you know, post-traumatic stress or some problem that you're carrying, whether it's not even related to combat, whether it's related to a problem you're having at work and it's causing you moral trauma or professional harm, while you have hope, while you are still breathing, you have fight, you have capacity. Mm. And one of the guys that had been in prison for 20 years told me, never give up your hope because once you do that, then... There's nothing left for you. Yeah. And I guess that's also the, if if I'm kind of predicting what you're likely to say, I'm guessing that's also the message that you're now sending to the multitude of people in Afghanistan that you are in touch with daily. Uh, Because I suspect that they're, they're, and we're recording this around lunchtime, Monday, uh, August the 16th. So Kabul officially handed over power uh, to Taliban. Uh, I think for us it was you know in the evening last night. Um, Ghani's out of the country. Uh, so mm. so it's a it's it's a it's it's a great place of uncertainty. While it might be eerily quiet, as some are saying, uh, many are wondering what is actually going to happen once. Uh, the Talibs have actually taken all their seats uh, and really better down their power. Uh, uh. Can you now, can we just m- maybe focus on those now? Because they are the yeah. ones that I think, if I understand correctly, you have been quite vocal and also galvanizing support, but also doing a hell of a lot of research to provide to the Australian government about the more than 196 
staff members who work directly with the Australian Embassy uh, on their backgrounds and so on and so forth. Mm. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a background on that uh, to set the context? Well, the the embassy, we, we call them the Australian Embassy Cohort, <laughs> 196 people. And um, since May 25th this year, um, neither the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade or Minister Maurice Payne have, have really given them any com- commitment to protecting their lives. So um, they're basically, they have fallen into a bureaucratic process um, of paperwork, of visa applications that really, in my opinion, um, do not meet Australian standards for procedural fairness or show any sensitivity to the cultural and language barriers that these cohort um, mm. have. And presently, you know, they they have all their documentation, that DFAT has all their documentation, but somehow these people are still falling through the cracks and we're desperately trying to um, engage the government, but the government is not reciprocating. And so as of um, yesterday, I know one of the guards got a response from DFAT and asked him if he could submit a statement of threat. So what is the what is the current threat to you? Is it real? Hello? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so... The problem we have, they also want some of the guards there to um, to complete another another form to do with this visa application, and they've already submitted their visa applications, and the form is thirty five pages long. Hmm. Um, how are they supposed to download it? How are they supposed to print it? You know, the Taliban are outside their door. Mm. And just so, just so people understand, because it, lest someone confuses the issue, their paperwork is already in. This is not this is not mm. people knocking on the door now saying, "Hey, uh, we work for the Australians." Uh, this, these people have been in the process, so to speak, or in the in the system, mm-hmm. so to speak, for quite some time. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Some for years. Mm. You know, and um, it's like. How much more do they need to provide? I, I know Minister Dutton, respectfully, you know, he's been on the media saying we don't want to let the wrong people into Australia and things like that, and I understand that and I absolutely agree. Yeah. And our um, defence intelligence forces, our security people behind the scenes do a marvellous job. God help us if we didn't have them. Mm. But we're not mm. talking about those sort of people. We're talking about security guards and embassy staff that have a documented history, unbroken employment history from 2010 to the day that they closed the embassy. And it's Mm. those people that are uh, sending me messages crying out for help. Is the Australian government coming? Is the Australian Defence Force bringing the plane to take us and our family to safety? What mm. do I tell them? Mm. You know, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. I've got messages on my phone. They're saying, do we run to the airport even though we don't have the ticket? And the Taliban are right outside. Mm. 
the neighbour is going to, to tell on me to save themselves. What do I do? Yeah, you and know, that's the and that's that therein lies the, the 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 great uncertainty right now. While Taliban is saying at the moment they will not be looking for people or they will not prosecute people who worked uh, with international organizations, well, they haven't exactly proven trustworthy in the past. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of young, angry Talibs who mm. are not part of the Doha crowd and and I and I explore this in some length in an episode published yesterday with Dr. Mike Martin as, as the actual composition of those uh, uh, various uh, Taliban elements uh, it's mm. the, there's nothing to say that the voice of those Talibs in charge will actually carry to the fighters on the ground um, and I know certainly that uh, and again it's circulating a number of letters are circulating from various uh, people uh, at the moment, certainly in my social circles, about many of these interpreters and staff having already received death threats, night letters, mm. uh, phone calls from unknown people. Um, is that what the people that you're speaking to have experienced already as well? Oh, look, we've sent reports to the government of actual footage of photographs of um, we've had security guards shot at while they're driving along with their family. We've got the the, uh, the night letters, of course. I mean, they're fairly common now. <laughs> Anyone mm. who's worked for the Allies um, usually get one. Um, yeah. You know, so we've, we've been able to provide some pretty clear and validated intelligence on the actual threat, mm. and it is very real. I really don't know who in Canberra um, can read some of these things that are coming out and not be affected by it. Um, mm. The men, we've, we've known men that have been killed and their wives have been um, laid out on the street and had their eyes taken out in front of their children and then their daughters are handed around to the Taliban and gang-raped. Um, this, you know, their other children are being beaten like animals, you know. So it's very difficult for me to remain optimistic. I am desperately trying to think that the Taliban have evolved over the last 20 years and understand that there's a lot of, um, you know, waster in trade relations and all that sort of thing. But it's mm. very hard when, as you say, there are some that are in in the group that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing and then you factor into it all the prisoners have been released. There's no one in any of the jails now. Mm, mm. And you're talking about men that were convicted for rape and, mm. and all sorts of um, sexual assault and, and crime, murder, you know. Mm. These are all people that are now just roaming the streets yeah, I think that's a that's a that's an important point to realize. Whatever you know, Taliban is not it is not a Taliban. There are the, you know I think Mike calls it the franchise Taliban franchise because there are various groups that declare affiliation to the cause, uh, but out of their own interests and motivations, and they of course have their own um, leadership architecture, yeah. decision making processes, and so on and so forth. And as we know, uh, certainly in Afghanistan. Uh, sides change rather quickly uh, because of the circumstances. So, you know, someone who 
has been on the receiving end for the past past 20 years uh, and their group allegiances uh, have now perhaps been liberated and uh, you know the 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 culture of revenge uh, in Afghanistan is also well mm. known uh, so we certainly uh, it's certainly not a stretch to think that uh, a lot of revenge uh, killings or, or or torture and so on uh, are, yeah. are you know are, are just around the corner uh, what what maybe An just opportunity opportunity as well opportunity in an environment where the economy has just fallen through the floor and you know you can dob your neighbor in and, and make some easy money that's right yeah yeah it's uh yeah and many many in Taliban will say that uh you know the tables are turned uh, because that mm. was one of the uh critiques of uh, of i guess of the west um, but mm. um just to kind of zero in on the actual issue. What? Where is the hurdle? What is the problem? Why have we not? Um, and that is probably a bigger question than I anticipate. Uh, yeah. But why haven't we been able to, as a society, as a government, as a nation, uh, to do something? I think one of the, if if I look at this objectively and try and take the emotion out, and I apologise for any emotion, it's been a, a tough couple of months. I think um, I think that um, we needed to actually really get in and form relationships, and not just our inner circle relationships. Um, no one from the Australian Defence Force, or aside from yourself just now, um, or from the Australian government, have been reaching in and asking those of us that have worked in this space for 20-odd years and had relationships with, you know, um, from, from farmers on the ground to the most senior politicians in the president's um, palace, you mm. know. The, those relationships that we have, I mean, Patrick Ryan is a, is a perfect example. He's a former facilities manager of the embassy in Kabul and he actually went with these guys out for for tea and dinner and, you know, sat around talking to them, you know, the embassy guards, and he formed those really tight relationships with them. And, you know, so he gets a lot of information from them on the ground every hour. Mm. And this is information that would be, would have been very beneficial to the Australian government, the Australian Defence Force and other agencies only they just shut the door on us and they wouldn't let us give them that information to help them make an informed decision about um, how best they can work contingencies to um, mitigate the risk to those people that they intended to evacuate. And why was that uh, door shut, Kay? Is, is that, is that uh, I don't know if I that's don't a... No. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know, and it makes no sense, Mass, because, I mean, even myself, I've worked in embassies. Um, I was a special projects officer in the embassy, Australian embassy in um, Saudi Arabia, hmm. and I worked with the team of people to write contingencies for the evacuation of Australians from six countries in the Middle East. Hmm. Now, you would think that the government would put me in someone's circle of trust and maybe um, because of my experiences and my work in, in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, 
maybe they would have reached out, you know, but they haven't. And this is the problem. There's there's no communication with people who have long-standing relationships on the ground. Mm. And I think that's a real failing. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it suggests a lack of foresight and 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 you know I've discussed this on the podcast on a number of occasions now um, that you know our strategy doesn't necessarily align with operations on the ground or what's happening on the ground, uh, and that strikes me again as another one of those examples, uh, which is uh, which is beyond I think for many veterans also. Uh, it inspires a sense of shame, uh, and that's that is literally the word I'm hearing across just mm. about every network that I'm a part of. Uh, that this is just shameful for Australia and Australians uh, that we haven't been able to do something for those who've helped us out so much. So, and well, I'm conscious. Of, you know, yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, when the embassy closed its doors on the 28th of May this year, without any notice to those working inside. You know, that really sent a message about what the Australian government was was postured for. And we should be ashamed. And and I don't I don't put this on the Australian Defence Force by any means. I'm talking about we the people. We should mm. be ashamed that we are we are not rising up now and not rising up six months ago or six weeks ago and demanding that this government start acting to fulfil their moral obligation and duty of care to those people that protected them when they when they went on those missions to um, to Kabul, those diplomatic representational postings. These people put their life on the line. They were shot at. They were intimidated. Their families were intimidated, threatened to be kidnapped. And all the while, our diplomats went and continued to operate safely in Afghanistan because of them. And now they've been left behind. They won't even, if we're talking reality, they probably won't even make it on the list because mm. there's, they, they have to go in behind AusAid, embassy workers, and then um, where they're up to now are the subcontractors of NGOs who were not even directly employed by our embassy. So our, our cohort of embassy guards and, and other mission essential personnel come behind those people. And now the embassy has closed and now... The U.S. Embassy is closed. All the U.S. Embassy people are already at the airport boarding planes and leaving, and we haven't even got ours out of their houses yet. What, where is our responsibility? This is so wrong. This reminds me, and I, don't, I make no exaggeration, this reminds me of what happened in Rwanda, you know, when people were just left. And these are people that risk their lives for us. It's mm. disgraceful and it does make me ashamed to be an Australian. Mm. Now, the planes that, have, that our government has said are going to fly in to get people out, are those planes intended to take uh, those uh, embassy staff uh, in any way? Has that even been a discussion? Have you heard those discussions? Are they on any of those lists? Uh, who no, are those planes taking out? 
Those, well, as far as I've, my latest information and information is a little bit difficult to get from Kabul at the moment because the Taliban are interrupting the lines of communication. Um, but our planes, our planes in particular, I don't even know what the arrangement is to get them in there because currently everything's closed. Um, and I believe they're either still in Kuwait <laughs> Mm. Or they may be may be arriving. There's no transparency around that. Um, you might be able to find that out. I'm not sure. But those people that are on that list to get on those planes don't include ours. Mm. Um, we've been told by the by people. Um, I can't give away the sources, but we've been told that those planes have been reserved for 500 people. That's individuals and families that DFAT have um, identified for processing. Mm -hmm. And they, among them, will be AusAid and embassy workers, mm -hmm. uh, not directly employed, but are subcontracted and have worked for AusAid programs um, via NGOs in Afghanistan. Mm. So they're Afghan nationals and their families, and while I'm really happy that someone's going to get rescued, hopefully, if we can get our RAF planes in there, um, I'm just super worried about the um, the 196 that will be left behind plus their families mm. who were actually contracted to the Australian Embassy and mm. provide unlimited um, service and, and, um, and our TERPs as well. Now, some people undoubtedly will say, well, they knew the risks. They took, you know, what arguably some might say in Afghanistan, a better paycheck than uh, other people who, you know, were working uh, oh. in the domestic market. What, what, what do you say to those people? Because they, I'm sure there will be some resistance to these, uh, this intention to get these people out. What, what do you say to them? Well, uh, I say um, go and go into Afghanistan and have a look at what they've had to deal with. We promised them a better life. We promised them that we would stand by them until their life was, uh, their country was stable and that there would be opportunities through trade and bilateral relations. We were going to um, really make their life better and we, we told those that worked with us that they could rely on us, that we wouldn't leave them. We would make arrangements for them um, to be repatriated to safety if, if it came to that. But we didn't really think that would happen because we were pretty convinced that we'd win that war. Mm. And we then told our Defence Force that they were engaged in a winnable war when clearly any of us who have ever worked in Afghanistan or anyone who's ever read about Afghanistan would know that the war was never winnable. I mean, <laughs> hello, wake mm. up. Mm. Um, so we told them, and, and let's not let the um, heart and Garda world and Sodexo and, and the others off the hook because they contracted these people on $30 a day. Mm. and told them that they would have job security and that you are like our family, we will look after you. 
And this is what happens um, with security companies. You know, they leave people in the lurch. They take $40 million contracts. Mm. And then when the going gets tough, they get going and they leave everybody behind. So there's a lot of people here, Australian companies that have made a lot of money out of the war Mm. who are fine. They've just moved on to the next country to make more money. But what about their duty of care to their contractors? Yeah. Yeah, you the know. I refer to it as the post-violent conflict industrial complex. I, I've I've spoken mm. about it on the on the podcast previously. I've done eight months in Iraq as a civilian contractor, and, and and the wool was lifted from my eyes. Just the amount of money that is involved in these types of contracts. Oh. It's just it's just the mind boggles. Um, just to bring us to to some sort of a, a close, given uh, that we've gone a little bit mm. above our agreed time, and I know you've got other commitments. Um, what can still be done now, Kay? Well, the Australian government, um, they can call us. Glenn Collimitz, who's a major, retired in the ADF. He works for Gap Legal Services. Um, the government can call us. We can give them access to the database that has all the validated information on it and we can work with the government to get that expedited. Our people on the ground in Kabul, they can be at the airport at a moment's notice. Mm. They have their grab bags. They have their documentation ready if they want more documentation. Mm. Um, and they, they, can, they can call Glenn Colomitz and they can honestly, they can just pick up the phone and let's save lives they're not people that need to be any further vetted. They're already being vetted. Mm. You know, just get them to safety. Work out the rest later. Mm. These people are not begging to come to Australia. Mm. You know, they just want to be anywhere but where they are because what fate awaits them is not going to be pretty. We've seen what the Taliban can do. We've seen what ISIS and Daesh can do. We just want to get these people that helped us to safety. So call Gap Legal um, mm. in the ACT and let's make this happen. I think that's a perfect note to leave this on as well, Kay. Uh, apart from me saying that I take my hat off to you for tirelessly doing this type of work uh, for no reward, financial mm. reward, that uh, you uh, did you do this uh, out of your own uh, sense of duty and loyalty to those who've uh, helped us uh, when we worked hard in Afghanistan. Uh, and I yeah. mean we collectively, uh, uh, the ADF and, of course, the FAT and so on. Um, so thank you for doing that uh, on our behalf. And I think you are right. It is a shameful episode uh, that hopefully we can uh, rectify in some small way. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I'll be certainly pushing this uh, out far and wide, as far and, as far and wide I can. Um, but, yeah, fingers crossed uh, for all of those, the 196 and their families that are stuck in Kabul at the moment. Well, I think, I think Maz, you know, uh, the veterans, oh, God, my heart goes out to them. I, I love our ADF. I, give, I would give my life for our ADF members. Mm. Um, ho- hopefully it'll never come to that. But, you know, no, there's no. a difference between bravery and moral courage and, and bravery on the battlefield 
and moral courage when you need to stand up. And, and I say to all the boys and girls out there, please get on the phone. Um, please get on the phone to the Australian government and, and demand that they contact us. We're trying to do this to respect your legacy. Um, you know, it's worth, it's worth every minute of my time and it's worth every minute of everybody else's time that are putting the hours in at no reward for themselves. Gap Legal are not getting paid. Glenn Colomitz is not getting paid. None of us are getting paid. We're just mm. trying to do the right thing here and, um, and, and respect the legacy that our ADF sacrificed in, in the name of Australia and the Anzac spirit. Wonderfully said, Kay. Wonderfully said. Kay, I'll be in touch. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.